Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Afternoon. Welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say next. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, Southern Sense and dot com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my courteous and colorful co host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. <laughs> I'm I'm not courageous anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's good oh, to be okay. back though. Uh, and we we have a lot going on in the country today and I hope we can uh, talk about some of it with our guests today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to welcome those that are listening up in the chat room as well as over in the studio. Just reminding those that are in the studio, if you want to comment or have a question, please press one on your keypad. That way I know that you're not just listening in, that you do have a comment or question. We've got great guests today. We've got coming back. We had him on last week. He's returning again because he's such a wonderful uh, guest. Ryman Shope, uh, Captain Ryman Shope, retired U.S. Uh, Navy. He's with TurningPointsInAmerica.org. And also one of our fan favorites, one of mine, I love this guy to death, Dan Perkins, Songs and Stories for Soldiers. Uh, He's also got his own website, Dan Perkins at Sanibel. He's got the Red Nile series. He wrote the book, uh, Why Grammy Doesn't Remember Me. Also uh, the Red Red Wagon books uh, are out there. So we got great stuff to talk about, great things to do. That said... Those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Army Specialist Gabriel Condi, who was killed on April 30th of 2018 while serving during Operation Freedom Sentinel. And this is from The Fallen at the Military Times. And it reads, The U.S. soldier killed in action in eastern Afghanistan was identified as Specialist Gabriel Condi of Loveland, Colorado. Condi, 22, died on Monday, April 30th, as a result of enemy small arms fire in Tagab District, located in Afghanistan's Kapisa province, the Pentagon had said. Another soldier was wounded in the same incident. At the time of his death, Condi was an infantryman assigned to the 3rd Battalion 509th Infantry Regiment, 4th Infantry Brigade Combat Team, 25th Infantry Division, at at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson in Alaska. 
He deployed with the brigade to Afghanistan in September to support Operation Freedom Sentinel, his unit said in a press release. Specialist Condi was serving as a security enabler assigned to a special operations unit that was conducting operations with Afghan security forces against the Taliban facilitation network in Tagab district. A resolute support spokesman told the Military Times. I would also like to reiterate our sincere condolences to Specialist Condi's family, friends, and unit who remain our thoughts and prayers. Condi enlisted in the Army in August of 2015 and had been assigned to the U.S. Army Alaska since since April of 2016. His awards included the National Defense Service Medal, the Army Service Ribbon, and the Parachutist Badge. That doesn't tell you very much about Specialist Condi. But what does tell you even some more is from the reporterherald.com, written by Hans Peter. And he writes, Army Specialist Gabriel Condi's body entered Lifebridge Church in Longmont, accompanied by family, friends, brothers-in-arms, and a light, misty rain. Though many trailed behind his casket in tears, Saturday's celebration of life service sent Condi's body off with equal parts pride, respect, laughter, and purpose. Condi was killed in action in Afghanistan on April 30th at the age of 22. Since then, his body has returned to the country. Loveland and Berthoud welcomed him home with thousands lining the streets to witness and honor his procession from the northern Colorado Regional Airport to Howe Mortuary and Crematory in Longmont. He goes on to write, In the hour before the ceremony, perhaps 1,000 veterans, friends, family, and neighbors entered the church to the faint sounds of Johnny Cash songs, which bounced along a slideshow featuring Condi as a child and student at Berthoud High School. Just outside the church sanctuary, a small table supported some of Condi's possessions, including his cowboy hat belt buckle, and boots. The service also held framed poetry by Condi and a notebook containing sketches and writing. One sketch depicted a man in a western hat and duster staring into a black void containing tentacles and other horrors. But Condi drew the man standing tall, squaring off with the darkness and a hand resting on the butt of his revolver. The small folding table and subsequent ceremony revealed much about the life and death of Condi. His body was ushered into the sanctuary with the heavy sound of dropkick Murphy's Johnny, I Hardly Know You, a song about soldiers. After a short introduction from Condi's close family friend, Paula Hooglin, three of Condi's best high school friends said a few words to set and welcome military audience members in Afghanistan and Alaska where the funeral was live-streamed. It's hard to describe such a great guy, said Heath Pick Perkney, who arrived in full Western uniform. Perkney said he admired Condi's confidence, heart, and persistence, noting that even when he was obviously wrong, he would stand by his convictions. He said they often went fishing together, and though Condi was a poor fisherman, he always got in the boat. Luke Foley, also in dark Western dress clause, added that Condi first came to his attention when they were in class and Condi reflected sunlight off his watch into Foley's eyes. Keel Leonard 
seconded the notion that Condi could sometimes be a tad annoying and cocky in class and running track and cross country, but his heart was always in the right place, looking out for others. Condi's father, Bob Condi, then read a letter from specialist David King, who met Gabriel at basic training. They became close friends and comrades. King had only respect and praise for Gabriel in his letter. Lucas Baylor then spoke about Gabriel as a brothers in arm. Baylor fought beside Gabe as his platoon leader in Afghanistan, standing before the crowd in full uniform. He fought back tears. I remember his last words to me, Baylor said. He said, Sir, can you take a hero photo for the family? He said that though his late comrade was keen on jokes, this time he seemed serious and composed. Baylor added that when he heard the request for a medical evacuation over the radio, he immediately thought of Condi, knowing in his heart that Condi would be the first person to sacrifice his life to protect others, all the way while laying down wholly suppressing fire. Condi manned an M249 squad automatic weapon, or a saw, a machine gun used to provide cover fire to others. Another military comrade, Travis Marshall, said to Condi, was well on his way to becoming a Green Beret, given his involvement in several missions. The team always insisted that Gabe be there, Marshall said. I told him, if you weren't so damn reliable, we wouldn't rely on you. A little later, family shared stories, poetry, and music. Gabriel's younger sister, Priscilla Condi, read a poem named Remember Him, in which she said, If love could keep somebody alive, Gabe would have lived forever. Then Olivia Condi read a poem and also performed a song that she presented to Gabriel in 2015, just before he went into basic training. Playing ukulele, Olivia sang about how her brother would return home with a story to tell. Then Gabriel's mother, Donda Condi, grappled with her emotions to vouch for her son's character. She said Gabriel had always carried around a favorite toy as a child, often one that made him a righteous protector. Gabriel thought of himself as the biblical protagonist David, who felled the blasphemous giant Goliath. Much later, he would carry a machine gun, Donna said. She went on to say that saying goodbye to Gabriel had always been hard for her, but Gabriel's latest deployment was excruciating. He had become a man who had laid down his life to protect others, she said, tearing up. I told him to come home alive. It was the only time he didn't comply with me. Donna said that since Gabriel's death, she has only seen beauty in the community. Bob Condi read ex excerpts from Gabriel's notebook, in which he had written poems while in Afghanistan. As he did so, members of the audience seemed surprised to hear Gabriel's words, which showed he had an understanding of what it would mean to die serving his country. One such poem stated that it was his duty to sling another stone in order to face evil and fight corruption. Another poem, poem titled Conversation with Death showed family and friends just how dedicated Gabriel was to his faith and his country. Applause echoed in a large sanctuary as each poem concluded. 
Bob kindly then said that love is what fueled him and that Gabriel's ultimate love, ultimate act of love, was to die for those back home. If you can hear this, Bob said, motioning to the ground and the live stream cameras, Gabriel loved you guys. Forgive me. Today's show is dedicated to Army Specialist Gabriel Gandhi. It's also dedicated to all those brave men and women that serve out there as first responders. Be they firefighters, law enforcement, or EMTs, as well as to our brave military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. May God protect each and every one, and may God bless them and America. We dedicate this song by Todd Allen Everendon. My name is America. Rock! 
And we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Block Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, YouTube. Oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my courageous and colorful co-host, Curtis C. Has said it. Okay. Curtis. <laughs> oh, man. I see that the chat room is filling up. I want to welcome everyone that is out there. God bless you guys out there. Ah. Uh, these, these, our listeners are the best. Uh, also, remind those they that are, are listening in uh, in the uh, studio, if you want to comment or ask questions of us and our upcoming guest, uh, please press one on your keypad, and we'll be happy to take you uh, take your call. So let's welcome aboard, returning to the show exactly one week after his last disastrous appearance. <laughs> let's welcome aboard retired U.S. Navy Captain Ryman Shove. Good afternoon, Ryman. How are you? Hello, Annie. That was a wonderful memorial there to Gabriel. That was well done, and I have to commend you for that. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I kind of lost it towards the end. Uh, they're not, you, you think after doing this for about eight years, it would be a little bit easier, but each each story is just so personal and intimate, I guess, to me and to the family members that lost, the friends and units that, that, that lost these these wonderful heroes just it, it tears me i mean it brings me back to the very first time i stood in uniform saluting someone that i knew and worked beside uh in the line of duty and I, it hits me every time it's just it's not going to get any user i guess well you know the progressives a few years ago was uh whining and uh, complaining about the 99% and how the 1% uh, you know had all the money and therefore the 99% should rise up and go against them but I know for a fact that I know who the 1% is and Gabriel is the 1% doing all the hard things so the other 99% don't have to that's the true 1%ers in America absolutely absolutely that was so well said I couldn't have said it any better oh man Holy cow. But anyway, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that's going on. And uh, you're down in Florida as well as Curtis. Uh, and we had that horrific hurricane that hit the panhandle. And uh, I sat out at home the last couple of hurricanes here in South Carolina when it made the direct hit uh, with Matthew a little while back. Uh, but this one, there was not enough time. There was really not enough time, just basically enough to tell people to run. I mean, normally you have at least a week ahead of time. You know it's coming in, and you can board up your homes and your properties. But this came with such a direct hit and force that we have not seen this in our lifetime. Well, uh, Curtis is down in Florida, but remember I told you I was hitting the road to come up to North Carolina, and I'm right in the middle of the state. And I got up, I got here about midnight last night. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful here today, Annie. I mean, just a slight breeze, not a cloud in the sky, about 65 degrees, bright sunshine. 
about as close as you can get to heaven as uh, can be, I'm thinking. <laughs> Unless you're down here in Buford. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got me beat on that one. Yeah. Remember, I am a Citadel graduate, so you're a little closer to heaven than I am. <laughs> well, uh, we also have the Marine Corps Air Station here, Paris Island Recruit Trading Depot, the Naval Hospital. I'm in the heart of the, what they call the Tri Command. So, you know, hoorah. <laughs> Well, if the world collapses, we're going to come to your house because with all those Marines around there, no one will be able to touch us. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, with with the hurricane coming up, um, we have the still the races going on in Florida, and it seemed to heat up uh, right after the storm w- with the governor's race with Ron DeSantis and uh, Gilman. Uh, boy, the slinging has just got crazier and crazier down there. You know, um, DeSantis, when he went and did his uh, rallies with veterans, he turned it into a collection for flood victims. And on the other hand, the Democrat, or I should call him the communist, uh, Gilman, uh, went into the headquarters, the command center, and hunkered down. So uh, that tells you who the better governor would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, a little different mindset there, don't you think? Uh, You have a Republican uh, governor uh, wannabe who is concerned about what's in the future, which is how do we take care of those that might be impacted in a negative manner from this hurricane. And then we have the Democrat who they say they're progressive, but when the the um, the heat's on, what do they do? They go and hunker down because really the progressives are the regressives. They're trying to take our country back to the way it used to be where we just have a few people running everything and then everyone else is left on their own where – the uh, Republicans, the conservatives such as you and I and Curtis, we look to the future. It's about growth. It's about uh, um, a prosperous future where the uh, middle class is moving into the rich and the lower is moving into the middle class, and uh, everybody's doing well because a you know, rising sea raises all boats. But not so with the Democrats, and that doesn't surprise me that he went and hunkered down and protected himself and let everybody else spend, uh, uh, just try to figure it out on their own. <laughs> yeah, well um... – DeSantis had scheduled a set of um, TV ads. You know, you know how this works because you ran for Congress. You know how you go to the media and you say, right, fine, I want to run these ads. And they schedule them ahead of time. They say, I want to run them, say, for two weeks or a month. And they put them into time slots. That's set. It's set in advance. So DeSantis had these ads set where he and the – they were not – well, they're actually done by the Republican Party, but he endorsed them. Uh, calling out Gillum for the investigation going on because he is the mayor of Tallahassee and there is a corruption investigation going on involving the FBI. So these ads were planned ahead of time. But lo and behold, at the height of the hurricane, these ads are running and Gillum is getting righteous about it. Is that again showing the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party? That whole party is, it is nothing but the party hypocrisy. Absolutely right, Annie. That's so true. You know, it's, it's funny because he's saying, well, I'm not the subject of it, but it gets really close to him where he is uh, photographed in various areas on trips with these supposed lobbyists that were actually undercover FBI agents under very questioning circumstances. So, you know, it is right to say, hey, listen, there is an investigation surrounding him, so shouldn't we be questioning his ethics? They weren't calling him a criminal outright, but they were saying, we're questioning your ethics or whether or not you are fit to be governor. And this is a question that everyone in Florida should be asking. Take a look at these guys. Who is out there 
thinking in advance saying the hurricane is coming. Let's stock up on water, blankets, food. Come on. We're going to be doing a campaign stop. So let's turn this into benefit everyone who are potential victims and look forward. Whereas the other one turns around and goes, well, I'm going to go to the headquarters so I can help supervise. He's the mayor of Tallahassee. He has nothing to do with the panhandle unless he becomes governor. The the difference and the dichotomy you see between the two of these is brilliant. Well, uh, why can't we have the same standard across the board uh, since he's under investigation? I'm just wondering, did uh, you know? Did he grope anyone when he was in high school? Uh, did he drink beer in high school? <laughs> did he drink beer till he passed out? And if so, how many beers did he have until he passed out? Uh, is there any women out there we need to contact to see what he did in his younger days? Can we look at his high school yearbook? Uh, can we have the same standard across the board, or is that not the case? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Curtis. Yeah, we we know Republicans are more about substance and liberals are more about um, feelings and personality. I'm not sure if you've ever seen Gillum on television, but he comes across as a very affable guy. He's, you know, he smiles all the time. He he sounds like, you know, the the new breed of uh, Obama, you know, um, types. And um, he just he's very charismatic, and that does concern me because Ron DeSantis, he doesn't really show a lot of personality. Um, he, he always seems serious. And I think he needs to um, not tackle this, like, personality or personality, but he needs to do it on substance. And what I mean by that, I think he needs to keep hammering the fact that Gillum is a socialist. And I think if he does that, you know, a lot of people, even Democrats, will start, you know, waking up, you know. What are your thoughts on that? I Well, I agree. I think you got a great point there. And when... I get into groups where we start talking about the difference between what's it you know, what does it mean to be a conservative? You know, why do I consider myself a conservative? You know, why would you not consider yourself uh, a progressive or a liberal or a democrat? And I I just straightforward. I said if you look at the what the Democratic Party is about, when you look at uh, Gillum, when you look at Obama, they're about images. And when you look at the liberal press, where is 90% of the liberal press? It's on television because that's what you view. You see the images on television. But when it comes to conservatives, we are about truth. And where do you get the truth? You get the truth in word. And so where do you go to find the truth in word? Well, you go to like Southern Sense. You you talk to Annie. You listen to Annie because – in any of the other conservative shows because conservatism is based in truth, and truth is in the word. It's about substance, just like you said, Curtis. It's about substance, where progressives, Democrats, liberals, when you get around them – when uh, and it took me a long time to figure this out because when I was in D.C., uh, I'll remind your listeners that I was a – uh, my last four years in the Navy, I taught. Uh, I was a professor at the National War College, where we taught strategy and policy, national strategy and policy. And I would, you know, I'd be around my Democrat coworkers. You know, they're reading the same thing I'm reading. They're seeing the same thing I'm seeing. But we came at it from two totally different angles, and I couldn't figure out when I would start stating truth 
facts, words, their eyes would glaze over. And then when they would come at me, they'd be like, yeah, but did you see how Obama looked? Did you see how Obama was dressed? Did you, did you see how Obama reacted? I'm like, well, so what? That's just an image to me. He can move and not, you know, not be correct. And so I think you're right that that's what separates conservatives from the progressives in that we think, we look for truth, we listen, where to them it's all about the image. And you know, if you, if you look at communism and socialism on the surface, it's very utopian. Oh, it sounds great. It's wonderful. Free health care. Everybody's got a job. There's a living wage. But when you put it into practice, when truth, you know, where the rubber meets the road, do you have a utopia in North Korea? Did you have a utopia in Cuba? Did you have a utopia in Russia? No. I mean, there's a lot of dead people on the road to that utopia. So I absolutely think you're correct. But what really bothers me uh, is that even if you um, have a message that's based in truth. If you have a lot of people around you that's just concerned about the image, they're going to look at Gillum and say he's handsome, he's articulate. I think he's got his act together. Uh, what's up with DeSantis? Not so. I'm going to vote the image and not vote the substance, and that's very, very scary from, from my point of view. You know, it, it's funny because I remembered an article that came out a number of years back, and I just actually found it uh, in Scientific American. And I used to read Scientific American as a kid, and at that time it was apolitical, uh, but now it's become completely uh, uh, liberal. But ironically, back in 2012, September 2012, they wrote an article, Unconscious Reactions Separate Liberals and Conservatives, where they actually studied the brains, and they said that the conservative brains – actually function differently than liberal brains. So by studying a brain scan, you can probably determine whether or not at a certain time, or whether or not they're reacting to certain uh, actions, comments, whatever, which brain is liberal and which one is conservative. That is that ironic or not? <laughs> I believe it. I believe that's true. I, I, I would get so frustrated when I was in D.C. because when the subject, subjects would come up, and you know, I would come home and tell my wife, like I'm having this conversation today, and as soon as I laid out facts, facts that we know are truthful, their eyes would just glaze over, and they'd be like, what? I don't understand what you mean, and the conversation would just stop, and I couldn't figure that out. And uh, I, I mentioned to your listeners before that uh, even though um, we were the National War College and we had lots of military there, we also had FBI, CIA. Uh, NSA uh, members, and we also had Secret Service. And, uh, and I remember we had we had a white male, we had a black male, we had a, a female Hispanic. Um, and you know, when I'm talking to them about uh, you know working, they had worked under Bush uh, 43, they had uh, worked under Clinton, uh, both Hillary and Bill. And so I'm talking to them one day about you know. What differences do you see? I didn't ask them if they were you know, Republican or Democrat, but because you have to be, you know, it doesn't matter if you're protecting the president what, what what party he belongs to. But I did ask them, hey, do you see any difference between when you have Republican presidents and when you have Democrat presidents? And I found it really fascinating the answer. They said, yeah. He says, you know, when you watch um, a presidential speech, and let's say it's in the Oval Office, he said, here's the biggest difference. He said, with Democrats. What you see on television, when the camera goes off, totally different people. They are not as they present themselves on television. He said Republicans, just the opposite. When the camera's on, it's them. As soon as the camera's off and it's just us in the room, it's the same person. 
There's no difference between a Republican on the television and a Republican one-on-one. To Democrats, totally opposite. Uh, I know one of the stories that uh, was told to us is uh, this is in Clinton's administration, and he says each year the White House tries to do something good for the workers. And he says, for instance, when um, when Dick Cheney was vice president, every year over a two-day period because you got shift work, so he would take half of his Secret Service and workers one day and the other half the next day, but he would feed them. He would do this big banquet for him out of his own pocket. He said it cost a quarter of a million dollars each year to thank all of his Secret Service members and all the admin people that work for him. And he asked me, he said, did I see that in the news? I said, no. He said, well, you're right. It's a Republican. They're not going to put it in the news, but they cared about their people, so he paid out of his own pocket to feed them. He said, contrast that with Bill Clinton. He said the, there was a Christmas party for the staff, and there was a football game on. And so one of the staff members went up to the president and said, hey, Mr. President, all of your admin people, everybody that works in your, um, you know, in your administration in the White House are downstairs having a party. I'm not going to ask you to come down and be with them, but would you be willing to walk out um, on the second floor and wave at everybody and wish them a Merry Christmas? And Clinton said, I'm watching the football game. Don't bother me. I don't have time for them. Now, that'll tell you the mm-hmm. difference between someone who really cares about their people, but it's not in the news, and someone who really doesn't care. He's there to not be – he's there not to serve, but to be served. And I think that's the biggest difference between Republicans and, Dem- and Democrats, and that's what you're seeing with DeSantis and Gillum. But if you're an image guy, if you're a Democrat, if you have that mindset – it's a lot tougher on DeSantis to, to, to get the votes, in my opinion, than it will be for Gillum. You know, unfor- that's the unfortunate truth. Unless people start actually listening to the message that Gillum's putting out there with this Medicare for all, and who is going to pay for that? Every single Florida taxpayer. It's going to be like, open the door, let illegal aliens in, and you're going to be a mini California. If, if not, well, actually, we joke because whenever we crossed into Florida, we called it Southern New York. <laughs> so you're partly on your way over there. But, you know, it's a sad truth, though. And this is something that uh, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. It's 26 days, I believe, until the election. We've got 26 days to see if we can turn this around and guarantee DeSantis a win. But uh, it's going to be a slog for you guys. And, oh, my heart is with you guys. That's for sure. That is for sure. Uh, I want to change the subject just a little bit because you were a Navy pilot. Um, you, you flew the um, the S3, was it, you flew? Correct, the S3 Viking. All right, because uh, I'm here in the heart, as I said, the Tri-Command, and a week and a half ago we had an F-35 go down uh, just not too far from me, uh, just about maybe – an hour and a half before we went on air, uh, the pilot did eject safely, thankfully, and he ended up hitting uh, one of the islands that was more of a fishing camp than, and a, a, although there were some people living on the island. No one was hurt on the ground, thank God for that. But as of yesterday, all of the F-35s, the F-35A, B, and C, have all been grounded. Do you know anything about this? I I think that's interesting that you you asked me because just about a week ago I was talking to some people like, wow, that F-35 went down, and there has been nothing in the news. And then I did a Google search and got the information that you just laid out for your listeners, and I haven't heard a thing since then. So I don't – I didn't even know that they had grounded the uh, the other F-35s. I mean I was kind of feeling sorry for that pilot because 
gosh, what do they go for? Like 120, 130 million a piece or something like that. I mean, they're incredibly 150. expensive. 150. One fifteen. One fifteen. One one. Go ahead. One hundred and fifty. Yeah, one hundred and fifteen million. Yeah, one hundred fifteen million. Yeah, I know they're incredibly expensive, and so now you have kind of got that on your conscience that I just, uh, you know, lost one hundred fifteen million dollars. Uh, I'm glad the pilot got out safely because, um, you know, we don't want loss of life. But I don't know. I don't have any other information on that. And I've, I've asked several people, and I get the same response. I haven't, I haven't heard anything. And usually we'll hear some. Uh, since I go to the NES Jacksonville, uh, when I talk to the other retirees, I usually hear something. But I've heard, I've heard nothing, so I'm not sure even why they've grounded the other F-35s, to be honest with you. Well, what little I can gather, because um, like I said, we're right smack in the heart of this, is that they had a time compl- compliance technical directive. Now, I have no idea, because you're military, so you would know what this means, a time compliance technical directive. Correct. What that means is, is there, they have found a defect either um, on a comp- uh, found a defect uh, uh, per a component that's on the airplane, and uh, all of your equipment is tracked on on a on an aircraft. Either um, the amount of time that it's been in existence, because you know uh, metals will fatigue over time, or the number of times that metal has been used, for example, think of a landing gear. You know, how many times has uh, a landing gear strut actually landed? And so you track all those numbers because you get to certain numbers, you're going to get uh, a possible failure. So what that means is they've looked at a component. Um, you know, maybe they thought it was going to last. I'm just making this up. Maybe they thought it was going to last for a year. Now they realize that they're seeing fatigue at eight months then they'll send out this directive and say, hey, if you have this component on your airplane, you make sure it's changed out at six months or seven months, you know, sometime prior to this fatigue that is showing up. Because as the aircraft moves along uh, in its life cycle, you're going to see fatigue or components that's not working as it was originally designed, and that's what that means. So I'm assuming there was some component that uh, was on that that they thought caused a crash, and now they're seeing, sending that out. Now these airplanes are down until they get that component uh uh, component changed out would be my guess is, is what that means. Well, now, according to the military, mil- with teeth in backwards, Marine Corps Times, uh, they say investigators suspect there is a widespread problem with the advanced fighters' fuel tubes. Now, I, if you remember uh, a couple of years back, you may have heard it that the pilots were complaining about headaches and nausea while they were flying these planes. And if you remember how the F-35 program went out, there's three different types. Uh, the Navy has one, the Marine Corps has another, and the Air Force have one. Now, some have a GE engine in it, uh, which I believe is heavier than the Bell and Howell engine. So therefore, the fuselage had to be made of lighter material. And then the Bell and Howell engine was lighter, but the fuselage could be stronger so they had different components but basically the same structure and it seems that of course all three of them they had something wrong with the advanced fighters fuel tubes do you know what that is um no but that i mean that would make sense to me they've got if they've got some kind of fuel distribution issue i.e fuel moving from the fuel bladder into the engine and now they're finding out that maybe in maneuvering or during takeoff or during landing or whatever the case may be, there's some kind of uh, you know, fuel starvation into the engine, then, yeah, they would want to ground all the airplanes until they 
either change out that tube, maybe make that tube bigger, make the fuel pressure uh, higher in order to get the fuel in the engine. Yeah, that would kind of flow for me. That would that would make sense that they would ground all of them because they wouldn't want to take the chance of another 35, uh, you know, being down by uh, through fuel starvation. Yeah, that would make sense. Well, you know, the only reason why I know so much about the F-35s is that uh, about 10 years ago or more, probably about 10 years ago, um, they were there's a business park directly across the street from the main entrance to the Marine Corps Air Station. And the, it was privately owned, and then the county wanted to buy it, and they could never get anyone into this business park because it is. It's right across the street from the front gates, and you've got the planes going overhead. And, you know, how do you conduct business with the roar of these jets constantly flying over? So, you know, we fought them the county because the county wanted to buy it and I found out everything I possibly could about the F-35s at that time and they were saying the F-35s will be up and running within five years. Well, they only finally got them up and running this past year ten years later mm-hmm. uh, so I ended up having to do all the research to find out why it was a bad idea and thankfully they didn't buy the business park. The city bought it and they still cannot uh, <laughs> get businesses in there. They're still trying and they actually have now I think it's the third or fourth uh, organization trying to fill the business park hired by the city. They still cannot fill it. So that's why I know so much about it, besides being right down the street from me. But I found it very, very interesting because I remembered hearing the reports of the pilots complaining about headaches and nausea while flying and demanding that they be grounded because they all said there was something wrong with the planes. And it was across the board, of course, all three versions of it. Well, I think what your uh, the article is alluding to is that the, not only the Navy, but I know specifically I see it in, the, in a, a lot of the Navy, Navy write-ups. Is uh, you mentioned uh, to your listeners that I flew S threes. The S threes was designed in the in the early seventies, and so my oxygen system uh, it was a bottle that had ten liters of oxygen in it, and when you know when we would go from one flight to the next, that bottle would get would get uh, swapped out so that we would have plenty of oxygen in inside the airplane. And when they brought in the F-18 and all the aircraft after that, they got rid of that bottle. Um, one, you know, you got to physically change in and out, and then, you know, you got to put new, m- more oxygen in it to, you know, to refuel it. And if you crash, that thing is under pressure, so you have a possibility of that container blowing up. And so they got rid of all that and went to what's called O-Box, which is a system – in the airplane that as you're flying, it generates its own oxygen from the outside sources. It generates enough oxygen for the, for the air crew. And what they have found uh, is that pilots were continually complaining of can't get enough oxygen, I'm having headaches, uh, some pilots were passing out, uh, some of them were getting sick. And I know at one point uh, in the training command, the pilots just among themselves said, we're not flying. We're going on strike until you fix this because we're going to keep going until somebody dies. So that would be my guess that they're probably having the same problem in the, in the F-35. And I've read article after article, uh, and they can't seem to get their hands on why this OBOG system is, is doing that to these pilots. And so it's, um, you know, especially in military aircraft because the conditions that you're under are so much more dynamic than you get than you ever get in commercial flying, and so that's a big deal. If you're at thirty-five thousand feet, 
you know, trying to make a hard turn, and now you're dealing with uh, oxygen starvation yourself. Not a good position to be in. No, it's not. No, it's, not. it's funny because uh, I went to get my hair cut yesterday. And believe it or not, I go to a barber shop. I refuse to pay $65 at a beauty parlor for the same thing my barber could do. <laughs> so uh, as I was at the barber shop, he had on the Smithsonian Channel, and they were doing this gloss piece on the F-18. And, uh, of course, my barber is slightly older than I am, by maybe a decade or so, and uh they're, they're all talking about how great, how wonderful those F-18s are. And I says, oh, yeah, uh, you're talking about planes that are older than the pilots that are flying at, planes that they have not had new manufactured parts for in years, that they have to go to the graveyard to get them. And these old guys are looking at me because, gee, she really knows her stuff. You know, what, this angers me because here we have brave men and women up there willing to, to sacrifice themselves to help defend our country. A country, and we cannot provide them with adequate equipment—not even standard equipment—and this really angers me. Yeah, I, uh, I I totally agree agree with you. I mean, you, whenever you have your son or your daughter getting into uh, you know something that costs 115 million dollars, you would like to know that um, it, the engine has plenty of fuel that it's not going to come out of the sky because of fuel starvation or, uh, you know, your son or daughter is flying that, that piece of equipment and now they don't have enough oxygen. They can't even stay conscious in the airplane. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the, and this is my own personal opinion. There's a lot of, a lot of military folks out there that would, would disagree with this, but I'll take you back to World War II. Um, you know, we beat the Germans, but technologically, the Germans were light years ahead of us. Remember, they had jets. You know, they had jets before anyone else. And just their whole technology base was so much greater than ours, yet we still won the war. Why? Because we had P-51s that were really fairly simple. We had Jeeps that were incredibly simple. But we made, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these uh, very reliable, cheap vehicles and so, you know, you can have the most advanced jet fighter in the world, but if your enemy is sending 20 cheap airplanes at you, guess what? It's still 20 to 1. And so when I have this conversation with, uh, with other military folks, I think that we have kind of moved in the direction of what Germany did in the 40s. We have F-35s that cost $115 million apiece. They're incredible pieces of equipment. They really are. But if you look at what China's doing, they have airplanes that – are by a factor of, you know, 10 cheaper, but they have so many of them. And I really think that they're kind of looking at history and looking at how we won World War II, and their view is, hey, sure, America might have us beat technologically. You know, they've got these wonderful, great aircraft, but guess what? We'll just overwhelm them. You know, they're going to be in their airplane looking over the horizon, and now there's 20 of these or 30 of these very cheap Chinese aircraft coming at them. And so that's where I kind of see us going um, even with the F-35, again, I'm not downplaying the incredible technology that's in it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still got to fly. It's still got to get to uh, its mission. And $115 million, you just get one F-35 where if the airplane only costs 10 you know, you would, you would have 11 of those or almost 12 of those. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I'm sure you've probably read articles where uh, the Air Force is always trying to get rid of the A-10. 
um, and they and the and it's actually Congress that says no, we're not going to get rid of the AT and uh, Air Force wanted to get rid of the AT and before the first Gulf War. Yeah, the Warthog. It's an incredibly it's an incredible airplane in the fact that it is incredibly simple, and they're only like seven and a half million dollars a copy. Think of the difference. An A-10 Warthog, which is probably the best air-to-ground attack aircraft we have, is $7.5 million. Uh, say again? Tank killer. Yeah, tank killer. You're right. You're right. It's a tank killer. That is $7.5 million compared to the F-35, which is $115 million. Now, true, it's two different missions. I got that. The A-10 is you know low on the ground, killing the tanks, supporting troops. I got that. But... Um, I'm kind of of the view that you kind of need a little bit of both, but uh, when sheer numbers count, you need to have your numbers because technology does not always beat numbers. We proved that in World War II against the Germans. Okay. Well, I'm just going to put a little plug plug Curtis, just a second. I'm just going to put a little plug in there for the Navy because if you ever have a chance to see the Blue Angels at a nearby military base, go. They put on a show that will actually knock your socks off. I love it when they come over here. And not only that, they can see the warthogs. They can see Fat Albert. They can see all the other uh, planes and helicopters and equipment that the uh, Navy has out there, along with the Marine Corps. Uh, If you ever have a chance to see the Blue Angels, I'm telling you, you must go. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, speaking of uh, naval aviation, uh, Captain, do do you think the Navy has been successful in integrating women into their aviation program, especially since we no longer hear about like tail hook incidents? <laughs> yeah, I mean we we have. Uh, I mean I did not agree with the way the Navy did it. Of course, being a conservative, I'm going to see it in a little different light, but. Um, yeah, the Navy has has successful. They have successfully integrated that. And the reason that I say that I didn't agree with it, um, you may remember uh, Carol Holtgreen, a woman by the name of Carol Holtgreen, got killed in a uh, Tomcat um, uh, accident where she, yeah, she was working. They were actually she was out actually what we call bouncing. You know, she was out getting her carrier qualification calls. So she's just working the pattern around the aircraft carrier, and she had an engine that stalled, and then she lost control of the airplane, and uh, she she died, and they lost the airplane. And the reason that I say um, I don't agree with the way the Navy started that program is because Navy leadership is very politically correct, and I can't stand political correctness. And what most people don't know is, you know, they the they made her out to be a, a hero, but when they had her in the simulator and they gave her that same um, emergency procedure, every time they gave it to her, she failed. She never passed that emergency procedure in the simulator. And so instead of saying, hey, wait a minute, if you have this actually in real life, you're probably going to die. They should have said, hey, wait a minute. We're not going to send you there because you don't have the commensurate skills to be flying that kind of airplane in that environment. Instead, they said she's a woman. Because she's a woman, we don't want to look bad. Put her in there anyway, and they did, and she had that same emergency procedure in real life, and what happened? She didn't control the airplane, and she died. I mean she truly was sacrificed on the altar of political correctness, 
and I certainly would not say anything negative about her family because I'm sure they're very proud of her daughter. But I always thought to myself, is that if that was my daughter and I found out that she never passed that emergency procedure and the Navy put her in there anyway, I'd get me a lawyer and sue the you-know-what out of the Navy because you basically sacrificed my daughter because you, you would rather sacrifice her instead of looking bad by coming out and saying, hey, we don't have anything against women being in naval aviation, but not this particular woman because she does not have the skills. And you cannot push someone in that arena that doesn't have the skills because if you do, they're going to die and you're going to lose airplanes. And so that's with my point about um, the way they started. I didn't agree with that. But yeah, you know, I flew, I had, um, you know, I had females in my squadron in VS 30. Uh, I flew with, uh, with females. I even flew with females back in the training command back uh, this has been in the eighties. So the Navy did a, did a good job and you don't hear anything about that, that anymore. So I was a fan of tailhook. I'm, I'm going to go on the record for that. I was a big fan of tailhook, but even tailhook is, is pretty much, they still have it every year, but it's nothing like it was back in the heyday of the eighties uh, and nineties. You know, I, I completely agree with you because, you know, when I went through the police academy, you would see who would actually be able to handle a situation and not. And, you know, you wondered why are they passing them? And it got worse and worse as it got more and more politically correct. You know, you had to be able to carry a dummy up two flights of stairs and you watch the guys throw them over the shoulder. You know, me knowing that I can't throw this dummy over my shoulder, but I got behind it. I lifted up behind the shoulders, grabbed, of course, the torso, and I was able to drag it and do the entire course in the time limit that was required. We have to Mm -hmm. modify how we do things. If we can handle the job, do it. But if you cannot, don't put me there. Because not only are you putting my life in danger, you may be endangering other people's lives. People maybe I'm supposed to be protecting because I can't handle the situation. And that's how I look at it. I mean, when I retired and I moved down here, you know, the local police department said, well, we'd like to hire you. And I said, no, you don't. And I said, why? And I said, I don't have full use of my right arm anymore. I cannot do the job. And if you put me out there, someone is going to get hurt. And I prefer not to put anyone in danger if I can't do the job. But, but instead, you see the political correctness, and it's gone amok. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And back to Curtis's question about the Navy being able to integrate females into the into the naval aviation, the service, in my opinion, that has truly done it the correct way has been the Marine Corps. Um, my son, who is a senior in uh, college right now at the University of Northern Florida, uh, he is going in the Marine Corps, and so he did some training back last April. Uh, at Paris Island, and uh, afterwards he was telling me this story because he, him, and I get into these discussions of you know males and females uh, in, in in military service, and he said, and my and my son is six foot two and is in great shape, and he said, Dad, the first thing we did is we had to put fifty pounds of sand in a pack on our back, and he said, and the women had to do the same thing. We got fifty pounds, they got fifty pounds. It was all the same, and she said the first thing we had to do was a four mile forced march. And he said, Dad, there was a woman in front of me. She was five foot two. He said, I did not catch her until mile three. And she said, Dad, that woman was so tough. I'm pretty sure she could kill me. And I was like, look <laughs> at the respect you're already showing her. I mean, you're six foot two. You're in great shape. She's, you know, she's probably taken two steps for every one of your steps. And yet she outran you for three miles. She's carrying the same 50 pounds that you are. And listen to what you tell me. Oh, my gosh, Dad, she was in such great shape. I'm pretty sure she could kill me. That tells me right there you're respecting her, which is in line of what you're saying, Annie, is that um, – and, and I think Curtis will agree with me also – is that when you're on the battlefield, it's really about capabilities. 
And if you have someone who is a female that is capable and your life is on the line, you don't you don't care. You're about capability. You want to live. And, I mean, I think most men would certainly take a woman who is capable if you're getting in a firefight than a man who is not capable. I mean, I, I think most people would reasonably say, yeah, I want to live. I want the capability. Forget about the gender. You know, the funny thing is, because I'm telling you from a woman's point of view, uh, is that one of the things I found is that we had to be harder. We had to be tougher. We had to try and convince people that, yes, we can do the job. But there were those that said, no, I'm just going to ride it because I'm a female and I know they're going to take me anyway. But I fought hard to prove myself. And I got to the point where I showed up at, we call it a 1013, officer need of assistance. And the cops that we responded to help turned around and looked it looked at me and my partner and said, I knew the two of you would be the first ones here. I know you two always have my back, and I will never forget that day. And, you know, I was so proud of that moment because, you know, it meant that, that I felt I was due because I proved myself in the field of fire. Yeah, and it feels great, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And like I said, to this day, I still remember that moment. And uh, my partner happened to be a female also. It was the two females that were out racing all the guys in the precinct to respond yeah. when another cop was in need of assistance. But anyway, I'm going to try to change the subject a little bit because um, this has already <laughs> gone viral all over the place. Did you catch anything about um, Kane West over at the White House yesterday with the football great uh, – uh, James Brown uh, at the meeting in the Oval Office. Hey, Kanye hugged the president and said he loved him. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful. Jumped up and hugged uh, President Trump, shook his hand, had his uh, MAGA hat on, and said, "I love this man." I like I I love Kanye West. I I mean I was never a big fan of him because I mean I don't really follow that you know that genre of music. Uh, and I just know what I read in the in the news about Kanye, but yeah, he's he's a he's a Trump man through and through. I love it. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is the way he said it. He says, "Listen, I was for Hillary, I really was, but then she didn't do it to me like you have." And he said flat out, yeah. "The black unemployment rate has gone down." You know, he did ramble on. Uh, he admitted to having you know a mental problem, uh, but hey. A large segment of our population has mental problems. We walk past people every day that may have bipolar or some other uh, issue. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, that they shouldn't be in places of power or, 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 or public speaking or anything else like that. Hey, it's not a stigmatism to have something wrong. Everyone has something wrong. And even I'm rambling at this moment. But, you know, it, the left had attacked him so viciously and so vilely. Had they said, had any Republican or conservative said one iota of what they said, they would have been excoriated. They would have been tarred and feathered. They would have had people picketing outside their houses. But CNN and their hosts get away with it. That's a great point. And what what comes to my mind is uh, even I didn't think that Trump was going to win. I mean, I was as surprised as as the next individual that he won uh, the election. But looking back on it, you know, I had indications that maybe this was going to be a different race. And I remember I was listening. This was probably in July, and I was listening to Rush Limbaugh one day, and this uh, gentleman calls in, and he's talking to Rush. And he says uh, – about two-thirds through the conversation, Rush says, hey, I'm just wondering, 
you know, are you going to vote for Trump? And he said, yeah, I'm going to vote for Trump. And this, but this particular gentleman was, uh, was African-American. And he said, and I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a lot of blacks that's not going to admit it, but they're going to, they're going to vote for Trump as well. And Russ said, well, why? Why you know did you vote for Obama in the other elections? And he said absolutely I did. He says you know when how often do you get a chance to vote for a black man to be president? He said but the reason that I'm going to vote for Trump this time is he says I do yard work, and he says right now I'm I'm in Hilton Head Island. I'm working on a you know in a, on a golf course, and he said right now in my team I am the only first of all he's I'm the only black man, and he said and secondly I'm the only person that speaks English. Everybody else in this group is Hispanic, and he said that didn't happen until Barack Obama became president. He said before Barack Obama was president, he I would show up and do my job, and he said, you know, 95% of the people would be black men like myself. And he said, Rush, when a black man can't even get a job pulling weeds, you know things are bad. And he said that's why I'm voting for Donald Trump. He says because we got nothing. The black community got nothing out of Barack Obama but unemployment. And all these Hispanics who are now coming in here competing for the jobs, and he said, that's why I'm going to vote for Trump, and I hope he wins. And looking back at that, thinking about that time in July, I'm like, you know, he, he clearly saw something that I didn't see, um, and he was true. He was right because Barack Obama won, and I think there are a lot of people that wouldn't freely come out and admit that they voted for him, but when they got in the voting booth, they definitely checked a block that said Donald J. Trump. And that's true because yeah. a lot it's, of blacks will get ostracized if they were to come out and say they support Trump. And, and even if it was just conservatives, they would get ostracized. So they keep it on the download until they get, like you say, inside the, um, the voting um, precinct and they cast their ballots. Well, you know, Con, Con, uh, Kanye West pretty much said that yesterday. He said, you know, all of my Hollywood friends have told me uh, that I shouldn't stand up for Trump and that I need to keep my mouth shut. But you know what? I don't want people. I don't like people telling me how to think. I think for myself, and I don't want and I don't want to be quiet if I don't want to. So I'm going to stand up for Donald Trump because he's actually doing something. And I think Kanye is absolutely right. Now it, it, it really resonated with a lot of people when he said that, and he said it loudly and firmly. And says, "I want to think for myself." And the social media went crazy because they loved that about him. Don't think for me. I want to think my own. Get me off the plantation. I mean, you had Herschel Walker who called out for the firing of Don Lemon uh, for his racist comments. Now, Don Lemon himself happens to be black, but he called Kane West the token Negro of the Trump Association. He, um, Herschel Walker, God bless this man, who openly supported Trump. And he's an outspoken advocate for mental health issues. Uh, he was appalled over the behavior uh, when uh, Tara Setmeyer and Bakari Sellers, Bakari Sellers, who happened to have been a state set, uh, state representative here in South Carolina before he lost his bid for lieutenant governor, went on to be working for CNN as their pundit, uh, were laughing about the awful remarks. Uh, and uh, it's it's. Setmeyer said, bless your heart, you want to silence me because I expressed an opinion different than yours, because I called Kane out for what he is, uninformed, and she called herself a conservative. You know, it's it's absolutely reprehensible what they called him, you know, uh, saying that uh, he's, he was ignorant because he didn't read, uh, things like that. It just, it was horrible. 
Well, you remember uh, when Clarence Thomas, after he got drugged through the, the mud, and when he got to make his statement at the end, you know, he said, hey, this was nothing but a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who want to think for themselves. I mean, how more mm-hmm. eloquent can you be than that? I mean, this guy is, you know, he's going to be a Supreme Court justice, and then and then you tell him that, you know, he's not qualified or he's done this and he's done that. Clarence Thomas was absolutely right. I'm a black man that's actually making something for myself, and because I don't think like you tell me that I have to think, therefore I'm not worthy. And as a, as a man, that would just infuriate me to no end. And Curtis, I bet you feel the same way. I mean, you want to think for yourself, right? Just like the rest of us. And that's insulting for them to say that and to I Kanye. Do. And Kanye says, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to put up with that. And I do. And and I appreciate what Conway uh, West is doing. But um, there have been many more blacks out there um, long before him. They just haven't had the exposure. And, you know, who have um, stood up for their conservative values and their beliefs and their um, love of America. And like I said, they they got bit into big time in the black community. So it is good that um, Kanye West has a platform where he can be heard and bring attention to himself. Uh, I do hope that um, he gets the foundation he needs to really deal with being out there as a conservative but other than that, you know, I think what he's doing is, you know, positive and what we need right now to bring others in the black community out of the closet, you know, to speak, you know, as conservatives. Because the black community, by nature, are conservative in their values. They just vote Democrat, just as um, K. Carl Smith was saying the other day. Yeah, I loved your interview, Annie and Curtis, with Kay Carl. I sent you that picture of when I was running for Congress of Kay Carl and I together. Yes. And uh, I think I mentioned to you, um, this may have been on just a phone call when I called you later, but I told you that when I read uh, Kay Carl's information about Frederick Douglass, about the, the answer to poverty is to either be employed, to either be an employer or to be employed. And I ended up putting that, it's on my LinkedIn page. Uh, under when I was running for Congress, and I used that in my speeches, but I got that from Kay Carl, who, of course, got it from Frederick Douglass. So, um, you know, I put that in there because I'm thinking that's so true. I mean, how simple is that? You don't want poverty, then either you're employed or you own your own business, of which you're an employer. And if you're one of those two, it's pretty much impossible to be in poverty, isn't it? It's only you're only in poverty when you have the government. Just give you enough just to barely to 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 make it. Then you're in poverty, which brings to mind. I always kind of shake my head when uh, Bernie Sanders and other lefties, you know, when they're in front of all these uh, cheering crowds, and he says, "You know what? The government needs to guarantee you a living wage." And they always cheer, and I always think a living wage. I don't want a living wage. I want a prosperous wage. A living wage means I'm walking to work. A prosperous wage means I'm driving my BMW to work. Who wants a living wage? I want a prosperous wage, and if all you do is let the government give you that living wage, you'll never be prosperous, and you'll never have a BMW. They will because Bernie, I think, drives about a $130,000 car or something. You know, He's got plenty of money, and he's, he's never never been an employer. He's always just been with the, with the government because all he is is a uh, socialist from the 60s. 
So I, I like Kate he's, Carl. He's never I like had a job. And, and I like those ideas. That's right. He's never had a job. That's true. He has never had a job. The only thing he's ever done was run for office. And yet he's this multimillionaire who owns an island in the middle of a river. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, look at the right. from? The Clintons worked in government most of their lives, and now they're a multi-millionaire. Well, I just want to comment. There was a question in the uh, the chat room from Kel, and I'm not ignoring any of the questions in the chat room, but Kel, uh, Trump had was she was asking about whether or not Trump had banned the sale of fetal tissues. What he did was he canceled the FDA fetal tissue contract. Uh, and as a reminder, today is the day that Gosnell, the movie, is released. It's out in 650 theaters as of today. And the filmmakers will be our guests and returning to the show on next Friday. So check it out because Gosnell, the movie, is released. And thanks for the question, Cal. Um, always paying attention to what people are posting in the chat room. Um, to change the subject again, because I had several different things, and Dan Perkins was supposed to uh, call in here. Uh, I don't know if he got tied up or whatever. He usually is on time or early, so I apologize for those that are waiting for Dan. I'm waiting for him, too. I just sent him a text. But um, there's rumors that after the midterm election, Sessions is out. Have you heard anything? That's the first I'm hearing it. No, I have, I have not heard that. Did, did you get the, you I didn't see that on drugs. Where did you get that? I haven't heard that. Uh, this was on the Daily Mail. I go all over the place for articles and everything. But the Daily Mail was reporting, and this is what they wrote. Uh, President Donald Trump spoke personally with Jeff Sessions. Why are my teeth in backwards today? Jeff Sessions, chief of staff. Say that three times fast. Uh, about replacing the attorney general in late September, according to a West Wing aide. The source confirmed that the conversation happened after the Washington Post reported that the president had teed up the conversation with Matthew Whitaker. Now, Whitaker is is his aide. I believe it's next in line. So it looks like it's a possibility that Jack Sessions would be replaced by his chief of staff. That is what I was catching. Yeah, I... You know, I have mixed feelings about uh, Jeff Sessions because I know he was like the earliest senator that came out and supported Trump. And, uh, but, you know, I've really kind of been disappointed since he's been in the position because he hasn't come out, you know, to drain the swamp like I thought he was going to. But then there's a side of me that says, well, maybe that's just for show. Maybe they're just doing that to throw people off because really underneath Jeff Sessions is, you know, setting everything up for the. I don't know, the November or December surprise. So I I don't know. I do know that Trump needs all the help he can get to drain the swamp, and I, I want to see these people held accountable. You know, I'm big on Benghazi, and I want, I want to do a plug for Benghazi down in Jacksonville, which is 3 November. Um, anyone can go to Dinesh D'Souza slash Jacksonville, Dinesh D'Souza slash Jacksonville to get tickets. We still have tickets available, and that will be 3 o'clock on 3 November. Dinesh will come down for our Benghazi memorial, and we are the, we're the only group in America that still does that. But I want to see those people held accountable, you know, on this side of eternity. And I think that DOJ could do it if they would get someone in the right position to make that happen. Yeah, well, Rod uh, Rosenstein was supposed to appear before Congress yesterday. He was subpoenaed. He did not show up. And meanwhile, just a couple of days before that, he had this big 45-minute sit-down on the, on the uh, Air Force One with uh, Trump, and yet he punks 
Congress. He just doesn't show up. Not only that, the documents they asked him to present were so heavily redacted that they couldn't read them. So the question is, is what the heck is going on at the DOJ? And you're right. When I saw Sessions nominated for the position, I was cheering. It says, yay, finally, we're going to get someone in the DOJ that's going to do something. And yet all we have had is stonewalling and deep state antics. Well, I would make this comment when I was running for Congress is that you hear all of these, you know, what seems to be very corrupt issues that kind of bubble to the surface, but no one is ever held accountable. You know, when you had me on the show last time and it was all about Benghazi. You know, you got four dead bodies, one of them being the ambassador. Nobody's held accountable? How is that? How is that nobody, not a single person is fired, disciplined, not reelected? Ah, it just frustrates the average American in a win. It has to, but it frustrates me. And I don't, I don't have the answer. I mean, that's why I ran for Congress to try to get in there to see if I could make a difference. But I, I, have a I, I don't know. And, I, and, and, and before you get to your theory, Curtis, you know, the thing is, if – you're doing um, things that are not legal and right, but no one is ever held accountable, then where, where is the impetus to do right things? I can do whatever I want to do, and I'm impervious to the law. I'm above the law, and if I'm not going to get caught, Hillary doesn't get caught, Bill doesn't get caught, Rosenstein doesn't get caught, then I can do whatever because there's two, two, uh, you know, two levels of, of ju- justice here. There's justice for Annie and Curtis and Ryman and all your listeners, and then there's a justice of those above us, which there really is no justice because they can do unfettered whatever they want to. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think it all comes back to Obama. It's just like that um, $150 billion he secretly sent to, uh, (laughs) to Iran, which wasn't a big secret, but Nobody wants to hold him accountable because he's the first black president, and they're afraid that uh, it would be a, a race riot in the United States if we ever charged him with a crime, you know. And I think that's basically it. You know, I think it was Susan Rice who gave the stand-down order, and I think she got that from Obama, you know. But I think all roads lead back to the State Department, meaning Hillary, Susan Rice, NSA, and Obama, the president. John Podesta, throw him in. Don't forget him. Him too. That's yeah. Yes, yeah. But you know, uh, this is this is my thought, Ryman, and this is my thought. I, I think when they first got into the White House, they threw out a test, and the test was that IRS scandal. If we can shut up people, uh, using the power of government then maybe we can use government to do whatever we choose. So while no one may have died with the IRS scandal, people did die with Benghazi. People did die in uh, Extortion 17. People did die with Fast and Furious. I think the first shot, of course, the bow to test whether or not they can get away with anything they want to do with impunity was the IRS. Once we let that slide, it was a free-for-all game. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I think you're right. And a comment about what you said, Curtis, about Obama. I, I am not a conspiracy theory person at all, but I'll tell you just an interesting story. When I was running for, when I was running for Congress, I came across this um, 
this older lady, and I was we're talking about Obama and talking about all the you know the Linskyites that were in his inner circle, and she says, "Yeah, she says in the late seventies, I had some uh, property, rental property." And she said, I had this guy who came in and you know, was, had long hair and a beard. She goes, I was kind of concerned about um, renting to him. He ended up being a really good renter, but I was was talking to him about politics, and he said, yeah. He says, I'm, uh, I'm moving down to Jacksonville from, um, from Chicago. And uh, she said, oh, okay. Well, you know, what do you do up in Chicago? He goes, oh, I'm very well – I'm very involved in politics, especially on the progressive side. And she goes, oh, okay, yeah, well, you know, the Democrats are, you know, working as hard as they can. And he says, no, progressives are totally different. And he says, we almost have everything in place. The last thing we need to push through is a black president because once we get a black president in, we will be able to do whatever we want to because because no one will stand up against him because then we'll just call him racist. And she said, I was thinking – this is 1978, and she was thinking to herself, it's going to be a long time before we have a black president. And then when Obama came on the scene and he was progressive, she's thinking, gosh, I had someone tell me that in 1978 that all we're doing is waiting to the time that we can find the correct black president to put in place and the progressives will do whatever they want to. And then you bring up the point of you know, the whole IRS scandal, if they can get that through and not get any pushback. So I think you have these people that for decades have been put in IRS, DOJ, FBI, NSA. And they're just waiting for their marching orders from the the, the uh, you know who, the progressive in charge. Uh, I think that's true. The Messiah, the black Messiah. <laughs> yeah, the Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know it was Bill it was Bill Ayers that put forth that that notion that um, you know in order for them to um, succeed on all levels of their agenda, they would need to have a black man as the spearhead of their movement. And he put that forth back yeah. in the, the 60s and 70s, Bill Ayers. Yeah. And this this particular individual that I'm telling you about, he was friends with Bill Ayers. So they were all in there together, he said. Just like you said, we're waiting for the, the correct time to get the perfect black president in there, and then we'll push our agenda through. Yeah, uh, there, there's some people asking in the chat room where Dan Perkins is, and he actually lives on Sanibel Island so it's possible he may have been evacuated out and not able to call into the show because uh, that would have been in the path of the hurricane. So That's um, right. I'm going to see if I – yeah, because he did confirm coming on the show prior to Michael hitting. So uh, that could be why Dan Perkins is not joining us at this time because I sent him a text, and usually he answers the text immediately, and I'm not getting any answer from him. He may not be in an area where he's getting cell service either. So I'm sorry about that, guys. We'll try to get them later on. Um, meanwhile, we got a question from someone up in the studio listening in uh, on there. I'm going to welcome aboard my former co-host, Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Cool Mike. How are you doing? All right, Mike. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, great. Um, I enjoy listening. I hope uh, I hope he isn't uh, in the middle of the uh, the hurricane there. Um, I have a, just kind of a question for the guest, and I guess for everyone to lay out there. Why is it... After all these years, why is it um, we're so afraid of somebody playing the race card on us? I mean, I get this all the time and uh, where I am, and it doesn't faze me at all. I'll challenge it any time. But it seems like, you know, when person A, say from CNN, says that person B 
whomever, a Republican or whatever, is a racist, they curl up. Just a perfect example is last week, I mean, it took forever, the beating of Kavanaugh, before just a couple of Republicans finally stood up to these lying feminists and said, you know, called it for what it is. Um, so I guess I'm laying that out there. Where, how is it that Republicans are just so spineless when it comes to, you know, fighting fire with fire? Especially the fact when you know they're lying. Hmm. Well, That's my answer question. to that is um, the, the progressives, uh, the Democrats, they are all students of Saul Linsky. Uh, and I, I have taught Saul Linsky's strategies for, for several years now, uh, and I'm talking about – he wrote two books, uh, Rules for Radicals in the 40s, and then later on he wrote uh, – uh, I'm sorry, um, Reveille for Radicals in the late 40s, and then his second book was Rules for Radicals. And if you look at his rules for how do you, you know, get power, and once you get power, you don't want to give it up, but one of his rules is, is that you pick your targets. You pick your targets, you isolate your target, and you, and you personalize your attacks. So I think the answer is, you know, why do we kind of you know, cower when someone calls you a racist? Uh, the, and you look at what they did to Kavanaugh. They made all of these claims against them, and in their mind, you are um, guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Vice innocent until you prove your, uh, uh, innocent until someone else can, can prove, can prove your, that you're guilty. So when someone, you know, if you're a conservative and you come out and you take a stand for what's right, and their immediate response is, well, you must be a racist, or you know, you must be a misogynist. Well, then how do you defend? How do you defend against that? You know, you're not a racist. You know, you're not a misogynist. But rules for radicals says, hey, we don't like Annie. Let's 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 pull her out. Let's make sure that we make her the target. Let's personalize the target. So we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure Annie keeps her mouth shut. And that's just how they think because rules of radical rules for radicals is just beat into them, and and they don't care who it is. They would go after Curtis uh, just like they would go after me. They just might pick another topic, you know. Okay, maybe Curtis is not racist, but he's definitely a misogynist. Therefore, we can't listen to him because he has no credibility. How do you fight against that? How do you fight up against that? It's, it's hard, and after a while, you start feeling like I'm I'm out here by myself, and I don't like these personal attacks. And the way that we're wired, when I'm talking about conservatives, I don't think we think that way. I don't think that way. I mean, in fact, when I ran for Congress, I told my campaign manager, I said, if the only way that I can win is to denigrate my opponent personally, I'm not going to do it. You can count me out. I'll go after his policies. I'll go after his politics, but I have no desire to go after him personally. And, and that's not how the progressives think. They go after each person personally, and it's, it's hard because it's so harsh. Well, it's funny because uh, we <laughs> there's a road that my husband and I travel almost every other day, and on one side of the street is a Democratic headquarters, and on the other side of the street is an abandoned building. It's not abandoned. It's just uh, vacant at this time, and they put out a sign on the Democrat. It said, stand with the people, vote Democrat, and I'm laughing at the sign. It says, what a progressive sign. And about a week later, we come down the same street, directly across the street in front of the vacant building. Someone uh, put up a handmade sign that's really rather large. So they must have <laughs> spread this thing across their front lawn to paint it. It said, vote with the facts, vote Republican, sitting directly opposite the Democratic headquarters. But that explains how they think. They think emotionally. 
what we think with the facts. This is what the issue is. Let's look at the facts. Let's determine how it's going to affect people and do what is the best thing possible. Whereas with the Democrats, let's do what we can to keep in power. So let's get people to vote with their hearts, not think with their head, and then we can control government forever. And that is the dichotomy between the two opposing sides. That's their strategy. You're absolutely right, Annie. Um, I have uh, almost the same story yesterday. When I was driving up, I get into Georgia on 95, and there's this big road sign that said, vote Republican because Democrats are crazy town. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Every time I I see that that video of them pounding on the the doors at the Supreme Court, I think of that show, The Walking Dead. (laughs) Yeah, I'll make a comment about that that uh, that really got to me when I saw that because oh, again, I'll go back to my time. Yeah, I'll go back to my time at the National War College. Um, you know, I think that a lot of things that are shown on the the news when it comes from the left is very very choreographed. And the reason I say that is because when I was uh, again at National every year, we took the class to the Supreme Court because Justice Scalia would meet with us, and we met right outside of those doors. So you're talking 238 um, you know, men and women you know, in their 40s, mid-40s. These are all professional people, and of course when you're in a crowd, people talk and you know, can be a loud murmur. And yet while we were standing there, the Supreme Court security walked up to us and said, who's in charge? You know, we said, well, you know, I am. Well, you either tell these people to be quiet or they're going to leave. We're going to make you stand outside on the steps. And when I saw all those people banging on the doors of the Supreme Court, I'm like, how is it that professional officers show up who are merely talking and security says either be quiet or get out? And yet they're allowing them to stand there and beat on the doors of the Supreme Court. Someone had to tell them back away and let them do it and let's videotape it because – what you see on television is not how I've actually seen it when I was there, and we weren't there to beat on the doors. We were just waiting patiently to go in those doors, and yet they were tell, getting ready. They were going to tell us to to leave and stand outside in the weather. You know, it's funny because when I saw that as a cop, I said, "Well, for, number one, where's the Capitol Police? Why didn't they set up a barrier and keep them on the one side of the rope? Where was the Capitol Police? Where was the Secret Service? And where was the Supreme Court security?" You had three different security agencies that should have prevented it, and not one of them took action. That is what bothered me. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Annie. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about you and I think alike. You know, where where was the security? What are they doing? Why aren't they doing their job? Well, then again, any questions? Because if you notice, the Capitol Police have dropped the ball many times especially under Trump, where you should have seen them acting within the law to protect, you don't see that. So the wondering is that how deep is the deep state within the Capitol Police, where they will back away from situations where they should be taking action? The question is, where's the deep state in there? So, Annie, do you think that if uh, you, I, and Curtis uh, went to D.C. and we had pro-life shirts on and we went up there to beat on the the doors of the court, do you think that they would allow us to stand there and do it, or would we get arrested? I think before my fist would be raised, my wrist would be in handcuffs. <laughs> I don't think I'd exactly. even get the steps with a pro-life pro shirt on. 
you know, it, it's exactly. one type of law for one group of people, and it's an opposite. And again, it's it's like John Gondola talks about the deep state that we're looking at. Um, I'm going to change the subject a little bit more uh, because we just went through the whole debacle with the Kavanaugh uh, nomination, and uh, 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 good lord, I just had a major brain fart here. And confirmation is the word I was looking for. Uh, and they're still trying to go after him, uh, trying to see if they can try to impeach him. But on the heels of this, Grassley, bless his heart, has moved forward and is pushing for judicial appointments where there's currently 49 of them pending. And he's using the momentum of Kavanaugh to push this forward. Uh, do you see him succeeding in all 49 or do you see the uh, left trying to slow him down? Well, the left has already been trying to slow them down because of procedurally they have done that to kind of uh, slow roll the, the process. But you know, from what I can tell from my position, I think Trump has done a great job of getting those appointments done, and I commend Grassley. I, I, hopefully this Kavanaugh confirmation, as you said, has uh, put a little spine into some of these Republicans, specifically Grassley. Uh, we know that uh, Lindsey Graham certainly has grown a spine all of a sudden. I think, but you know, if you if you get pushed around enough, eventually the anger takes over, and uh, that makes your spine grow a little stiffer. So I think he will. I think Grassley's going to push right through and keep on going. And and I know that's what Trump wants. And he said he's going to put as many conservatives as he can on the bench, and we need that. So I I'm cheering Grassley on. I I want him to keep going until they get it done. Well, now that's going to bring me into the next question, because after we had this huge fight with Kavanaugh, uh, Nikki Haley is stepping down as ambassador to the U.N. come January. Do you see a huge battle over ambassador to the U.N. now? I would say it all depends. If um, if there's a huge sweep by the Democrats, oh, God help us if that doesn't happen. If there's a huge sweep by Democrats in November, yeah, they are going to do everything they can to stop Trump. Uh, if not, you know, if there's a uh, a red wave instead of a blue wave, then I think it's going to sail right through. But the American people are going to have to get to the polls and vote the right way, and we'll find out here in about 26 days, as you said, whether or not that's going to take place. And have you heard anything about who a potential pick would be? Because he's, he's had a couple of names that have been floating past him, and he's not really confirmed or denied them. Uh, but the good question is, you know, who do you think would be the top two or three? I did read an article about that. I know there's one female, one male. I'm pretty sure the female is actually uh, kind of on the Wall Street side of the of the ledger. Um, you know, I noticed that Bolton wasn't in there. Remember, he's had that job before, uh, but uh, I don't think Bolton is in the running. I don't have any more information than that. I'm sure that Trump will will lay out his case when that time comes. I think Nikki Haley has done a great job. Uh, and here's where you can make me a little smarter because I haven't lived in, in uh, South Carolina since 1985. But did you feel like she was an effective governor? Um, I would rate her uh, out of five. I'd give her about a four. Uh, there was a couple of things she did here. One of them was with accepting the U.N. Uh, refugee settlement uh, people uh, against our wishes. You know, the area that she put them up with, it was a huge battle, and there's been a lawsuit that's been instituted over that uh, because the community was never consulted. They had no idea where these people were placed, uh, and then the community had to bear the burden because only the federal government will only pay just so much, 
and then it's the local county that has to bear and the local town that has to bear the brunt of the the expenses and they were not consulted and you know so that is one thing I disagreed with her on uh there was one other issue oh uh yeah increasing our gas tax here uh we ended up working with um oh good lord uh, I can see I can see the guy's face and I can't think of the group now um we worked with a a local uh, pack group to try to defeat the uh, gas tax, and you know, a bunch of us went up, busloads of us actually went up to the uh, to our state congress and waylaid the legislators and the senators as they were trying to marry the bill, uh, demanding them to not pass it, and that did not succeed. And she signed it to law, so that's why I give her a 75 instead of a perfect hundred. Um, otherwise, she was a fairly good governor. Yeah, that was two cent a year for the next seven years. Isn't that right? Isn't that the the tax that's coming up, coming your way? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. So actually, you know some of our South Carolina politics. <laughs> but you know, I, do, as, I, I as try to pay attention. I do. But as ambassador, <laughs> I give her a hundred percent. You know, governor. But then again, I've met her. We've talked and everything. Uh, she's a very lovely lady. Uh, anyway, again, changing subjects, because I have so much I, I put aside to talk to you and Dan Perkins with. Uh, but uh, we've got the G20 Summit coming up in uh, Buenos Aires. And word is that Trump is going to sit down with China's Z to uh, talk one-on-one. What do you see happening there? Um, I I love the way that Trump just approaches Whatever the issue on the international stage, you, you hear him say this over and over again. Um, when he gets confronted with, well, ha- how do you think you're going to solve this problem? And he'll, he'll always say, well, I'm going to sit down and talk. I mean, I think uh, Trump is very personal, uh, and I love how, remember when he got elected, what was the first world leader that he really reached out to? That was, that was President Xi, brought him into um, Mar-a-Lago and you know made him a guest now we know now why he was doing that is because he wanted to really solve this issue in North Korea and so he needed President Xi on his side so he was lying and dying President Xi in order to try to get into Kim Jong-un now I think there is uh, a little bit of uh, you know confrontation between Trump and Xi because of uh, the, the, the trade relations that are going on but I totally agree and support Trump in the fact that the reason that he's doing these tariffs is he wants to create enough pain on the other countries to get them to the bargaining table. And there's no other way to get them to the bargaining table unless unless he does these tariffs. So I think that whatever there whatever deterioration there has been in the relationship, I think that's what's going to happen in Buenos Aires is that Trump is going to try to smooth that over because he realizes that he needs Xi on his side. And we don't want China as an enemy anyway. I mean, China sees us as their number one competitor, you know, and they would like to see us go away. I don't see that happening, unless, especially not under Trump. But I think that's the conversation that's going to take place between Xi and Trump there, is he's going to try to smooth it over and win Xi back on, you know, to our side of the, our side of the ledger. Well, was it also to uh, put more pressure on North Korea, too? Yeah, and I'll give you a I'll give you a thought about North Korea that I have a I have a little different perspective um, than even than Trump. 
in that you see this big push um, for Kim Jong-un to give, give up his nukes. But think about where he is geographically, right? Who is north of North Korea? That's Russia. Russia has nukes. Who is west of North Korea? Well, that'd be China. They got nukes. Who is south of South uh, North Korea? That'd be South Korea. They got our nukes. So Kim Jong-un is surrounded on all borders by countries who have nukes. And then we go in there and say, hey, Kim Jong-un, you need to give up your nukes. Well, first of all, they're dirt poor. Really, the only thing they have is these nukes. I mean, if I was Kim Jong-un in his position, I would tell Donald Trump, hey, I want to be your friend. How about let's compromise and let me keep my nukes, but let's be allies, and my nukes will become your nukes because you need someone here on the border of Russia. I'm on the border of Russia. I want to be your friend, but my goodness, if the Russians start coming my way and I don't have any nukes, I'm doomed. You know, I don't have any way to to stop them. So if I was Kim Jong-un, I wouldn't give them up. But I'm going to stand with Donald Trump. If he can, if he can convince, uh, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un to give up the nukes, great. But he's not going to do it without, uh, without President Xi. I mean, he, it's just not going to happen. He needs Xi on his side in order to make that happen because North Korea and China is tied up the hip without a doubt. Well, you know, South Korea has been making overtures towards North Korea. They've been doing it bit by bit. Um, do you see a forthcoming reunification, or is, just, is it just going to be a little bit of the uh, lessening of the tensions? I think it would be lessening of the tensions. I um, Now, I do think that, that the whole family is incredibly you know, vicious um, because he's a typical dictator. And all dictators only want one thing, and that is to stay in power. But I don't think that Kim Jong-un is as ruthless as maybe his father and his grandfather. And the reason I say that is because, you know, his father and his grandfather, you know, they were – they were their mindset was formed by what they saw in North Korea. Remember, Kim Jong-un was actually sent to Europe for an education. So Un has seen, you know, kind of the other side of the world. He has seen Europe. He's kind of seen what capitalism brings to the table. And so, even though I think he's probably vicious as far as wanting to stay in power, I think he has seen enough to realize that if capitalism comes in even a little bit, it solves a lot of his problems. And I want to commend Trump because if you know a little bit of background, when Trump went to North Korea. He started telling Kim Jong-un, hey, you know you've got great property here. You know, I'm a real estate developer. You could develop North Korea. You could have casinos. You could have high-rise buildings. You could have these huge resorts. You know, you're kind of a gateway into China. You could make your country fabulously wealthy. Now, think if you're a young Kim Jong-un. You've seen the, you know, kind of the wealth in Europe. You've seen wealth around the world. Now suddenly here you have this capitalist of the most powerful country in the world, and he's telling you, hey, you could make your country fabulously wealthy. You know, Think about in the future of kind of the mindset of, hey, when I get to the age of you know, when my father and my grandfather died, what will my legacy be? And wouldn't it be nice if my legacy was I made North Korea incredibly wealthy other than making them poor under communism? So I think you're going to see less – uh, less tensioning going along because North Korea really doesn't have anything to gain by taking a hard stand at this point. I mean, they really, really don't. Uh, and I think that the you know the wealthier that he can Kim Jong Un can make North Korea, I think the more 
his people will love him, and it will be out of you know respect and not so much out of fear. So that would be my basis for, for the statement that I made. Okay. Curtis, go ahead with your question. <laughs> yeah, I got a two-part question for you. Uh, it's a different subject, though. The other day, um, we failed to get, well, it wasn't us, but um, we had two astronauts that failed to get to the International Space Station. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Trump wanting to have a space force? And the second part of that question is, as a pilot, have you ever seen any weird things up there in the sky? <laughs> uh, well, to answer, I'll answer your second question first. Uh, no, I've never really seen anything. You know, like, I'm, I'm assuming you're asking like uh, unidentified flying objects and stuff like that. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I flew with a, I flew with a few pilots that were a little weird. <laughs> I wondered about some of the other some other people I flew with. But, uh, no, I, in fact, I was just thinking probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen is um, I was uh, had done something up in the, in, in the north, and I was heading back down into Jacksonville, and it was during the summer. And you know how you get those really quick, uh, you know, thunderstorms uh, in Florida. And we were just flying along, and I'm watching below. You know, I'm looking below my airplane, and I can see this thundercloud building below me and it keeps building until it's higher than me and it's building right beside the airplane and i'm just sitting there with my head down like look at that it's building so fast that it's it's forming itself and then it just kept going i don't know how high this thing was probably 30 35,000 feet but that was probably the most amazing thing i ever saw just flying was this thunderstorm building right next to my airplane as we're kind of weaving you know in between the the sails that, that tried to get home but that was I've never seen any UFOs or anything like that. Although, um, did you see probably been about four months ago where they released the video of the Hornet pilot that was tracking a UFO? Do you remember that being in the news? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'll tell you the most amazing thing from my perspective is as the object was moving, now FLIR, what it does is it detects heat. And so you have um, two different views that you can switch between one's called uh, one's called white hot, where uh, the heat, uh, heat heat signature of the contact will show up white, and then you can flip to black hot, which means the coolness is now white, and the black on the on your um, the subject that you're tracking is you know is now becoming black, and so you switch between those two. And if you watch that video, you see the pilot constantly switching between black hot and white hot, and that will give you a contrast. But what that does, of course, it's going to pick up a heat signature, and if you notice, if you go back and look at that video as that object is flying, there's no heat signature around the object. Like, you know, when a jet flies by, you get the heat signature coming out of the exhaust? There was no heat Mm -hmm. signature at all coming off that object. So whatever was causing that object to fly, it wasn't thrust like we think out out of a jet. And then it rotated on its axis that one time as it's, as it's pulling to the left. So I don't know what that was, but I've never seen anything like that. I mean, personally, it had a different propulsion system. Huh? Yeah, yeah, there was no heat signature. I, I'm just sitting there looking at it. I'm like, what's causing that thing to fly? There's no heat signature off of it. And then when the pilot flipped between white and black, uh, 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 between hot and cold, I'm like, wow. Because when you're, when you're videotaping a jet, 
um, you, you know, you'll, the exhaust will, will show up because that's the heat signature. And even when the pilot, uh, you know, pulls, pulls away and comes up on the throttles, you can see the extra heat coming out of the back of the airplane. So it, it really gets magnified on a FLIR. And the whole time that guy's uh, tracking the object, I'm like, wow, there's no heat signature at all coming out anywhere around that object. So I have no idea what the propulsion system is because clearly it's not a jet engine like we think because there's no heat signature on it. Um, now, what, what, your, what was the other question you asked me? What is your thoughts on having a space force? Yeah. Um, I have two thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, we already had a space force because the Air Force is responsible for anything that goes on in space. Um, and you know, really all that Trump did was is the, um, you know, the, the pilots, the Air Force pilots, they just want to fly. And, you know, they don't want to be missilemen because the Air Force is responsible for, for all our, you know, ICBMs, uh, the land-based ICBMs. And then you have anything that we deal with in space. Uh, so you already had a space force. It was called the Air Force. Really, all he has done is separated the Air Force, which is going to be just pilots, from the Space Force that's going to be anything that deals with space. The downside to that, though, is now you're going to have twice the bureaucracy. So you're going to take the Air Force, or you're going to do a split that, Space Force and Air Force. But now the Space Force is going to want its own separate bureaucracy of um, – civilian workers that now work specifically with Space Force. So now we're going to add even more uh, cost to a uh, an entity that already exists. And with $21 trillion in debt, I'm not really a big fan of adding more layers of uh, bureaucracy into something they already have, but I think that uh, train's already left the station. You know, It's going to work because we already have a Space Force. Now they're just going to be their own entity. Well, wouldn't it have been wiser if they made it an arm of the Air Force, a subsidiary of it, to say? Well, I think the argument against that would be is that then when you get into to funding, and I think, I think I heard Trump talk about this, is that when you go into funding, you know, you've got your, your four-star Air Force general. You know, he's in making his case to Congress. If he's a pilot, then he's – you know he's there uh, in Congress saying, "Okay, I want this much money for the F-35. I want this much money for what I'm doing in space." Oh, wait a minute, I'd rather have more F-35. So that's where I'm going to put my impetus. Now, if you have um, the Air Force general coming in making his case, and behind him is a four-star Space Force general making his case, well, now you're kind of on an even, you know, an even kill where now you can get funding into the space side of the Air Force and then on the the pilot side of that. And I, I remember Trump talking about that, that he felt that a lot of people that he talked to that's on the space side of that issue, they didn't feel like they could get the funding they needed because they're not pilots. They're more interested in, in space. And that's why I was kind of driving him to, to separate the two. So now you could get the same kind of funding in space as, um, as they feel like they should get because they were kind of getting slighted because they were under, you know, under the air force. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't isn't the Marine Corps uh, part of the Department of the Navy, and yet they can still maintain separate funding? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. You're right, but they certainly don't get. You know, the Army and the Navy is kind of, uh, you know, under one financial umbrella, 
and then you know the Navy take what what, what they're going to get, and then the, the the Marine Corps gets what they get because it's such a smaller uh, force. So you're absolutely right on that part, Annie. Um, but I, I I'll go back to I think that enough people have talked to President Trump that hey the Space Force really doesn't get the resources it needs, and you look at what's happening with Russia. You know now we we don't have any heavy lift vehicles anymore. If we want to put somebody in space, we have to go to the Russians. The Chinese, their their space program is has been funded heavily. So as the, our two biggest competitors, China and Russia, are funneling more and more money into their space programs, we're pulling away. And I think that uh, Trump felt that was a it was a threat. And the way to to kind of get his arms around that was to separate. Space Force and the Air Force so they could get the funding that they need to do the things that we need on the security side of the, uh, the issue. Oh, well, I'm looking at the clock. Wow, I've got lots of more questions. I haven't gotten close to half of what I wrote down last night. Um, but one of the hey, things Annie, I wanted to ask you can I jump in is, and ask a question? Uh, I want, let me get this one in first, Mike. Because uh, this is the the John LeCar question of the day, uh, because there was this this incident of 15 Saudis that landed in Istanbul's airport. Uh, there was they landed in the morning, they left that night. Oddly enough, this journalist Jamil Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate and was never seen again. And the CCTV in the uh, that was available shows these alleged assassins arrive and so what we're hearing is is that when the journalist went in and didn't come out he came out actually in pieces uh what have you heard on this and (laughs) is this thing even possible oh i do think it's possible uh i really don't know anything more than what i've read on drudge report um but that part of the world (laughs) It, it does not function the way that our mindset uh, allows us to function. And it, I'm sure it was very simple that, uh, you know, um, what's his name? King, um, I'm drawing a blank on the king of uh, Saudi Arabia right now. Uh, king Solomon. Abdullah? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, isn't it King Solomon? I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank right now. The young king that just took over, uh, I'm, you know, he's – his word is the authority of the kingdom, and I'm sure if he, you know, pulled his guys in and said, "Hey, make that guy disappear," they made him disappear. They just had to do it in pieces, so that wouldn't surprise me. But other than that, I don't really, I don't have anything, uh, any other comments other than what I've just read off a of drudge. Yeah, because he worked for, I believe it was at the Washington Post, but it made me wonder whether or not he was actually working uh, for the CIA. Maybe that's why he disappeared. Might be the case. I know one of the articles I read said that his girlfriend was waiting outside the consulate, was waiting for him to come come out, and he, he never he never came back out. So boy, that's a scary position to be in to see your possible future spouse go in and and he never returns, at least not alive. And thank you, Vito. It's Abdullah Abdullah bin Salman. Yeah, that's the guy's name. Salman. Yeah. Oh, so go ahead, Mike. Okay. I was close. We've got just a, we just got a few minutes left, Mike. Go ahead. Okay, two quick questions on that. Uh, number one, do you think one one of the uh, your personal opinion, um, the Chinese for years, even going back with Reagan, we've been nothing but their little bitch toy when it comes to trade, and they just walk all over us. They own our politicians. Do you think, in many ways, as you see, they are starting to now cave? 
they just didn't know how to handle Trump, the fact that he wasn't caving. He was unbreakable, unyielding, and for for basically for decades, China just, I don't know, they just didn't seem, they did not know how to control him or not control him. They just didn't know how to deal with him. And secondly, as far as the Democrats, um, do you feel if uh, the Republicans maintain in uh, in the midterms, um, do you sense Trump launches an all-out, absolute patriot attack um, and really, really uh, goes for the jugular vein, uh, knowing obviously in 2020, if things maintain, there's there's nothing but success for Trump ahead. Those were my questions. Thank you. And thanks for letting me uh, jump in, Annie. Um, to answer, I'll answer your second question first. Um, yes, I think um, Trump has a, uh, a keen sense of where he is with his base. And if his base turns out and there is a big red wave in November – I agree with you. I think he's going to go for the juggler big time against the Democrats. I think he's going to go with everything he's got to really, um, you know, put them in a minority as far as power in Washington, and then he'll use whatever power he's got at that point to truly drain the swamp. I agree with you, and I want that to happen. So I know sometimes we say things that we, we think they're going to happen because we want it to happen, and I'll freely admit, I think it's going to happen, and I want it to happen. Uh, to answer to your your uh, first question is, and I'm going to try to make this quick, Andy, because I know we're almost out of time. But do you remember uh, when Tiananmen Square happened? There, there was a picture of the young student who was trying to, you know, keep the tank from moving, and, uh, um, and that that student ended up disappearing. No one knows what happened to him. But there was a student uprising in Tiananmen Square, and the reason that that scared the Chinese so much is what most people don't realize about how China is set up is that where here we have the political side, we have um, you know, our business side, and then our military comes underneath the, um, you know, the, the, on the political side of the house. You know, the, 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 the um, military is subservient to the, to the politicians. Not so in China. In China, you have three entities. You have the Communist Politburo, you have the military, which is its own entity, and then you have these young capitalists that really – had had enough of uh, the communist regime when they did their uprising uh, in the you know what late late 80s early 90s, and that really scared the communists because what the communists need is to make sure that the military is on their side, but the military is smart enough to realize as we used to say in the navy no bucks no buck rogers, and so the mil- so the military realized that if they want to stay strong militarily they need money who's producing money it's not the uh, Politburo, the Communist Politburo, it's the young uh, capitalist. And so what the, the, the reason that the communists are so fearful is they know that if they try to clamp down on the capitalist, that the military will more likely side with the capitalist against the Politburo because they know where the wealth is coming from. They would know where the money is coming from. And so if, you're, you know, if you read the news accounts, this trade embargo or these tariffs that Trump is doing against China is really hurting their uh, economy is driving their stocks down. Well, who does that affect? That affects the young capitalists, and the, and the communists already realize they don't want to tick off the young capitalists because they're afraid they could literally get thrown out of power. So I think Trump is smart enough to realize that also. He puts the pressure on the economic side on China. The capitalists want to keep making money. They, they like their cars. They like their caviar. They like their nice apartments. 
but they also pay taxes, and that taxes is what keeps the military in power, and they're not beholden to the Communist Politburo. They're their own separate entity, and they don't get any money from the communists. So I think China, uh, Trump is smart enough to realize that, and when Trump says, hey, you know, with NAFTA, we really funded China, I think that's true. But their economy has grown at like, what, 7 uh, or 8% for the last 30 years? That's phenomenal. Now, they're still behind us, but let's not forget, we got 330 million Americans. They got 1.3 billion. That's a lot of people, and if they're all working, they're producing a lot of wealth. So I, I agree with your point. Trump Trump knows what he's doing uh, with Xi, and I think he's smart enough to realize that he's got to keep the, the capitalists happy. If not, uh, Xi will be out of power. Absolutely, and I Thank believe you. China was the TPP, right? The, that was the first one he broke, the TPP. Correct. That's correct. That never really got signed in. It was working its way through, uh, through Congress, and then when uh, – Trump got in. He said, "We're not doing that. We're gonna, we're gonna renegotiate everything because that TPP, in my opinion, was like NAFTA. It gave all the powers uh, to the to the other entities and not for America. And he wants to make America first, as we well know." All right, and give your website out again because I have up here the Turning Points in America dot org, and the other one is. Yeah, if uh, this is for tur- uh, tickets for Benghazi, which again is Saturday, three November at three o'clock in Jacksonville. To get those tickets, all you need to do is Google Dinesh D'Souza slash Jacksonville, Dinesh D'Souza slash Jacksonville, and it'll pull up Eventbrite, and then in the search engine, you can just type in Benghazi, and you'll be able to pull up all the all the tickets that are still available for that event. Well, Ryman, I want to thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and I'm sorry we didn't get Dan Perkins, but I think he may have been affected by the hurricane because, it's, like I said, it's highly unusual when he doesn't get back to me immediately when I send him a text. So uh, my prayers go out to him and his family. hope they, they are safe. Uh, but we will be talking again, and it's always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you so much, Annie. It's a true pleasure. Take right. care. And uh, we're going to be back. Uh, next week, next week we've got uh, Burgess Owens is going to be joining us, and Scott A. Shea has a new book out concerning religion and atheists. So we're going to have them, and then next Friday, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to have Anne and Philip McAlerney that have the new movie just released today, Gosnell the movie, starring Dean Cain. Uh, so check that out. It's in 650 theaters nationwide as of today. Uh, So we will be back next week. So everyone be safe and out there and have a happy and healthy weekend. And we'll see you back on Tuesday. So I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. I say good night and God bless.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.